It's time for conversation here on 94 WIP Old Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, and a beautiful WIP day it promises to be. It's going to go up into the 90s. God, get the air conditioner, get the fan, get the cool drinks. You're going to need them, and it's only going to get hotter tomorrow. But no matter where you go, you're going to have even hotter conversation here on 94 WIP. And when we come back in just a bit, we're going to explore the stock market because my next guest has a lot to say about the stock market and investing. His name is Tam Liu, and he's got a new book that describes how the stock market is, in fact, a Ponzi factor, and that's the name of the book, The Ponzi Factor and a whole lot more, coming up here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. And we're back. It's conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. It's 94WIP All Sports Radio, and I'm pleased to welcome here author Tan Louis, his new book, The Ponzi Factor. Good morning, sir. Hi, good morning. Okay. There's an old song, I think it comes from the movie Cabaret, Money Makes the World Go Round, and that's mm-hmm. really what makes the go round in terms of the stock market, isn't it? Uh, I guess you can say that. <laughs> Money does make the world go round. The problem, however, with the stock market is that there's a lot of misconceptions about where the profits actually come from. We're not talking about simple misconceptions. We're talking about misconceptions that are actively taught at the university level, actively used in Wall Street. One of the biggest misconceptions about stocks is that the rise in the stock price is a result of earnings and growth of a company. That is a huge myth because what really makes a stock price move is not the earnings and growth of a company. It is other investors' money being traded between each other. And in a system where investors are trading money between each other, and in fact taking money from each other, and thinking that their profits are coming from somewhere else rather than other investors, is by definition a Ponzi scheme. Absolutely. And we heard about Ponzi scheme um, mm-hmm. from nice men like Bernie Madoff. But this is something much bigger and grander, isn't it? It is a, It is bigger and grander in the sense that it's actually happening. What Madoff did uh, really isn't that different compared to what's happening every single day. Um, what Madoff technically did, the only real difference between Madoff and, let's say, people who are right now trading Google stocks, okay, is Madoff probably didn't trade anything, as in he traded air. He literally gave one, took one investor's money and gave it to another investor, okay? Uh, Google stock, on the other hand, are pretty much equivalent to air, okay? Because half of Google's, cla- uh, Google's shares are Class C shares, which none of their stocks, by the way, pay dividends, okay? So you never get any money from the actual company and the billions that Google makes. Uh, the C shares are perhaps the worst because they don't even have voting rights. So really, this half of Google's stocks, the ticker G-O-O-G is the C share ones. They have two different tickers, but the C share ones are the G-O-O-G ones. Um, it's really nothing just than a, a sticker, a Google sticker that's out there traded amongst investors. And the investors who are playing with this thing, who are holding it, think that it's a legitimate equity instrument. It's not. Um, and, well, again, what's the real difference between what Madoff did and, and what a Google sticker is? Well, there's a Google sticker and versus maybe just empty air. But at the end of the day, this sticker is meaningless 
because Google says they're not going to pay you any money from their earnings. Google says you have no voting rights, okay? And clearly, by the way, Google does not back the value of their stock. No public company out there backs the value of their stock. That is perhaps one of the biggest, biggest myths out there that people seem to think like how companies uh, will back the value of their stock. That's simply not true. There's a lot of information in their SEC filings that go into hypothetical scenarios like how, oh, yeah, shareholders uh, deserve some dividends or are entitled to dividends or entitled to this under certain conditions, okay? All of them are hypothetical because those conditions, trust me, they never get met, okay? <laughs> and then when, it, when it's time to meet those conditions, they'll adjust something else and then they'll just, you know, won't pay it. Um, I've heard, and this is what I hear, that by law, I think these companies do actually are supposed to pay dividends. Okay, uh, and at least by financial theory or whatever uh, textbook stuff uh, people want to point out. But what we can clearly see in practice, though, on the other hand, is a massively different story. Google, perhaps the biggest and most one of the most successful public companies out there, has never paid dividends. Berkshire Hathaway has never hasn't paid dividends since 1967. Um, Tesla, well, gee, that's a funny story because they never make money, so of course they don't pay dividends. But look at their stock price go from 20 to 380 dollars. Um, so, so the point is, the stock itself, when people are buying and selling, this capital gains aspect uh, that people gamble on. Um, and what CNBC likes to talk about and make it sound like if it comes from the earnings and growth of the company, it doesn't. It comes from another investor, and the stock itself is not backed by anything. It is not a real equity instrument. It is just literally an artificial label that's called an equity instrument. The reason why stocks are called equity instruments comes from history, okay? Because before the 1900s, when stocks first came into existence in the 1600s, so 1600s, between the 1900s, all stocks paid dividends, okay? The way stocks are supposed to work is indeed like an ownership instrument. You buy a share, and the company makes money. They pay you some of the money in terms of dividends based on the share you own. However, since the 1900s till now, what we have are really these Ponzi assets that do not pay dividends at all. Google and, they, and these companies explicitly state they don't pay dividends in their SEC filings. And this idea of capital gains being the only source of profit, it was never, stocks were never meant to work this way. Um, so the point is, stocks are called equity instruments today based on history. But today's stocks that do not pay dividends and capital gains seems to be the only way people can make money which, is, which, by the way, comes from other investors, right? Um, it, it, it's not how stocks are supposed to work, and history shows that they're not legitimate equity instruments today. Okay. I recognize there are highly speculative stocks that you can mm -hmm. lose your shirt on without a whole mm -hmm. lot of effort. Mm -hmm. And then there are what are called widows and orphan stocks, where you know the little, the little old lady invests her money to make sure she gets a monthly income. How can there be that mm -hmm. wide a gap between the two kinds? Um, <laughs> well, I'm trying to understand the two analogies you use. I've never heard those terms, uh, widows and orphan stocks. <laughs> um, the second type, it sounds like those are dividend-yielding stocks, mm -hmm. the ones with right where basically they get a little bit of the money from the companies or something like yes, that, right? Exactly. And the, yeah, and the first kind is is the non-dividend yielding stocks, which are which I call the Ponzi assets. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I'll buy that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I don't. I mean, I don't know. Well, personally, there's a. I guess we can all speculate on how it became this way, as in how uh, this idea that stocks no longer or stock basically stocks no longer need to pay dividends, and the companies can just issue these imaginary paper that no that they never have to have any real monetary obligations to. Um, it, it is a new concept. It is something very, very odd, and I don't know exactly how 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 we got this way. What I can just simply, just seriously, just my simple my simple opinion. What I believe happened in the 1900s is this. Okay, I wouldn't be surprised if one company said, you know, what? Well, hey, why don't we just try this like not paying dividend thing and see what happens, right? And they probably weren't sure how it was going to work out. And they tried it, and what they noticed is, oh, you know what? We didn't pay dividends, but no one seems to care. They're just they're just looking at the stock price rise, and 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 you know the investors seems to just care about the capital gains. And, hey, man, we'll just stop paying dividends. Hey, why why share money if we don't have to, right? And then I and then I think other companies followed suit, and then we just come today, you know, where a lot of most most companies do not pay dividends. Even the ones that do pay dividends, it's very questionable whether or not they're even legitimate dividends because uh, because because most of them make a lot of money and they don't pay that much. But you know, if you make a hundred dollars and you pop a penny to your investors, is that really a dividend? I don't know, right? I don't. Okay. Technically, technically, it's better than zero, right? So I can't really say it's, they don't pay dividends, but come on, right? <laughs> so so the point is, yeah. But but at the same time, a lot of these companies. Do not pay dividends at all. Uh, Berkshire on their SEC files almost brags about how they don't pay dividends. Warren Buffett talks about how um, he's better with the money than his investors. Okay, well that's cool, Warren. I understand that, but you do realize, and well, actually he doesn't realize, <laughs> is that if, if his investors are only making money by selling their stock to other investors, that is a Ponzi scenario. That is that that shows Berkshire's business is not attached to their stocks in a monetary and a legal and a legitimate way. So how did we get this way? How do we get this way? Yeah, I mean what I believe what I believe, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of issues with how we got here. I mean we can speculate on many. I personally believe that one of the most fundamental issues that we have right now is the way we record stock uh, profits in portfolios, that we literally treat the price of a stock um, and, uh, as, a, as a monetary value in terms of we label it that way. So when somebody actually sees, let's say, $10,000 in their stock portfolio account, right, stock trading account or stock portfolio or whatever, even 401K, they literally think that they're entitled or that's equivalent to $10,000 in real money. And the thing is, it's not at all. As in that $10,000, even though it's got a currency symbol, one with four zeros after it, 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 it's not money. It's literally zero dollars, okay? Because the stock price and whatever's in their portfolio, it's an abstraction. It's, It's just a number. It's something that came from two people exchanging money, okay? It is fundamentally different from money itself. This is why we have a $30 trillion stock market value between the S, between the NYSE and the NASDAQ, which also, would you agree, $30 trillion of stock value also means stock investors feel they're entitled to $30 trillion? Would I, you agree with that? I, I, I think people do think that, but obviously it's not true. 
Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, people do think that because, you know, like, hey, if I had a stock portfolio and I saw $10,000 in it, I would think I'm entitled to it, right? Right. <laughs> it's, it's normal. If I, see, if I have a 401k account and I see $200,000 in stocks or whatever, I would think I'm entitled to that. <laughs> there's, I mean, there's, and, and the problem, of course, is they're not entitled to it, not even close. We only have um, $1.6 trillion in circulation of currency in the entire U.S. economy, $3.8 trillion in total of hard currency in the economy, in the U.S. economy. Uh, by the most lenient measure of mon- measurement of money, the M2, we only have $13 trillion. Basically, the M2 is not just hard currency, but also banknotes uh, because we have a fractional reserve system. So the point is, even with the most lenient measurement of money, we only have $13 trillion, not to mention most of that money is not even for the stock market. We're talking about just money in the economy, period, okay? So we got, we got a stock market value of $30 trillion, okay, with investors thinking that they, they, they're entitled to this, and clearly they're not. And, and the thing is, this is that $30 trillion, as we all know from crashes, it could disappear very, very quickly, right? <laughs> and that goes back to the idea that this is – that's because it's an imaginary number. And, um, and you, your initial question was how do we get here? I do believe the way that we're accounting for this market cap and the way that we're labeling these – in Chapter 5 of my book, by the way, I talk about this uh, – the way we're mislabeling this stock value with the currency symbol and giving people a false impression – that they're actually entitled to money that's not there, that they're not entitled to, I think it's a big problem. I think this is one of the biggest problems that we've gotten because because look at all the hype. What happens when the stock market value rises? Um, yeah, people, yeah, yeah, it's great, it's great, it's great. So, you know, it's just going to feel more more money into the thing, into the scheme. Um, and, and then here we are, you know, many years later where companies just decided, uh, hey, we don't have to pay dividends because people are just – betting on the price of the stock to go higher and feeding off each other. So why do we have to pay money? You know, why do we have to share profits with our investors, which is exactly Google's philosophy and, um, and even Berkshire's philosophy. So how do we get here? Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's my guess. <laughs> and, you're li- and you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Ton Louis. It's Ton Lu. Ton Lu. Okay. Ton Lu. <laughs> Hanlu, uh-huh. author of the new book, a new book, The Ponzi Scheme. A book about no, the Ponzi Factor. Ponzi, Ponzi Factor. Factor. Oh, I'm not doing well this morning. It's early. It's even <laughs> earlier where you are. Um, yeah, it's all good. <laughs> um, the Ponzi Factor and how the stock market works from his perspective. My name's Peter Solomon. All right. What led you to get interested in this issue? How did you develop the oh. concern? Yeah, so how did I get started? Well, one, I worked for two hedge funds uh, in, a, in a bank as far as my, my, my career goes. Um, I initially got, I guess, I initially started this project, writing this book back in 2012, but um, I started really getting angry about the system in 2008 and 2009, Mainly because I literally saw one of my the hedge funds I worked with pull off a very legal but very very shady uh, Ponzi scheme structure. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't want to get into that. The details of that is in chapter one the story because um, there's a lot of uh, some accounting terminology in there. But, but point is, 
Um, yeah, but it's it's uh, what they used was something called cruel counting. Well, I'll just get into it. What they used was something called cruel counting, where they basically were allowed to record profit, phantom profits, okay, uh, for two years, uh, based on the idea that they could sell this asset in two years for, let's say, uh, a projected value uh, of the asset. The problem, of course, is um, when it was time to sell the asset after two years, after recording phantom profits, those assets were worthless, okay? Uh, but at the same time, the Cytron was able to literally uh, record and report uh, positive returns for, for in reports for about, I think it was like 15 to 20% a year, which is like astounding, right? Mm -hmm. during the, while the whole strategy never made any money. So initially I was angry because I saw that. It was, it was the first step when I got disgusted at finance because I realized until then I was very passionate about finance. I was just like anybody else. I would, I would say I'm even very much like my critics <laughs> who criticize the book. But by the way, my critics never actually read the book. They just criticize it <laughs> because they, they hear that I'm calling it a Ponzi scheme. And they just uh, come out with reactions. But they don't realize that at one point I was very passionate about finance. Uh, but um, I saw a lot of dirty things. And, uh, and, I, and initially when I got really angry and wanted to do something was when I was with really because I was angry at my old hedge fund and what they did. However – during that process, I realized, one, what they did was indeed a legal, I quote, legal Ponzi scheme, right? Totally legal what they did. But it was really no different than a Ponzi scheme. But that also made me realize that a greater area of finance, it wasn't just what the hedge fund did with accrual accounting, but a lot of financial um, instruments, a lot of financial strategies out there are follow this Ponzi process. And including the stock market. Literally, when I first started this book, it was not supposed to be just about the stock market. It was actually supposed to be how a lot of these financial strategies out there yeah, that hedge funds engage in are, are Ponzi, like Ponzi structures where they're taking money from one investor to pay off the other one. Um, I focused on the stock market because it's a symbol of Wall Street, right? It's supposed to be symbol because I needed to keep the story um, concise, readable, and very easy for people to understand. And the stock market itself was also very symbolic of the financial industry at large. So, and then the more I looked into it, the more I realized, man, this is like really messed up how stocks work. And um, and then and then it took a long time though to actually um, understand also how my the counter arguments work too. If I call the stock market a Ponzi scheme, I, I explain why it's a Ponzi scheme. Uh, what are the typical reactions people have? Um, the typical ones, real quick, I'll simply say, well, that's ridiculous. Uh, you know, stock market's going to $30 trillion. How could you say people have been making money? Earlier, of course, I addressed that by saying, oh, yeah, but that's not real money, okay? <laughs> um, but also people like to say, well, Google can start paying dividends or, you know, Berkshire could start buying back their own stocks or Tesla could start making money and start buying back their stock or paying dividends later, Right. And I used to have to – or here's another one. Oh, but all the shareholders could bind, to get, bind together and, uh, and sue the company or even sell the company because they, they're the shareholders, right? So I used to have to engage in all these one-on-one -on -one as an address. Why it is that it's silly to assume Google pays dividends? And then we're talking about Google's like, you know, history and a whole bunch of other random stuff. And then really what it is is, an, is a stupid speculation, stupid hypothetical argument – 
about really what can be accomplished by suing Google, okay? <laughs> which no one knows. Okay? Basically, the shareholders decide to sue Google. So the point is, how do how can I, I, it took me actually many years to realize that all these counter arguments had one thing in common, okay? And I need because I I couldn't just address all of them one by one, my critics, because it's just too time consuming, and at the end of the day, it's actually very unproductive. Well, I realized they all have one fatal flaw, and I repeat the word fatal flaw, okay? Okay. They were all hypothetical arguments, okay? All of them were hypothetical. The reason why that is so flawed is because the Ponzi scheme I'm describing, the Ponzi process of investors trading money with each other, happens every day. Okay, every moment the stock market is open, and it is something we can clearly observe. It is not a, what I describe the Ponzi factor and this this Ponzi scheme that's happening is not a hypothetical scenario. It is an observable one. Therefore, logically speaking, my critics, those people, all those people, and their arguments, they cannot use those unprovable hypothetical arguments to debate something that is clearly observable. From a logical level, from a scientific level, it's just stupid. In fact, Karl Popper, the great philosopher, he, he called those uh, hypothetical examples pseudoscience ideas that are empirically uninformative because you can't prove it right and you can't prove it wrong. <laughs> and, and it's true. They are just literally just pseudoscience ideas. So the point is all the finest people, the, the counter arguments I, I run into, the common ones that people react with, it deals with – they're all hypothetical examples. And, um, and, and yeah, and then from there – so that was a big part of the project, actually, a big part of the, the research because a big part of, I would say, the enlightenment of when I was writing it because, again, it's, it's, I was trying to keep the book simple. I knew that if I, I knew that there was something fundamentally wrong with all their arguments, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. But, it, but after many years of just – thinking through it and stuff, I realized it. Um, and I guess from there, I just, uh, yeah, I just did more research with respect to some of these companies and, um, and then, and then, uh, th that's how we have the book right now. So <laughs> it took seven years, by the way, it's in most of the seven years was, it was not explaining why the stock market is Ponzi scheme. That was the easiest part ever because you look at the definition the SEC offers and you look at what's happening with capital gains it matches the definition identically. Um, it was actually addressing all these side arguments and finding way and, and understanding how to uh, understanding or finding the simple way to address these side arguments, counter arguments people have. So many people, though, um, mm -hmm. have invested their money in the stock market directly. May have a pension that's funded by investments in the stock market. Um, may yeah. have four hundred one ks may yeah. have other financial instruments for their old age or to send their kids to college that are mm -hmm. um, in the stock market. Are you saying they all got snu snookered? They all got lied to? Well, they, they did. Um, I don't, you I mean, it's hard. I, I know it's hard to, I don't even like saying it, to be honest, but they did. As in, what people need to understand is when you buy a stock, all right, you'd have, let's say, I mean, Google stocks are trading $1,000, right? Mm -hmm. If you take $1,000 of your money and you buy a stock, your money is gone. You're holding a piece of paper, a Google sticker, okay, that Google says they're not going to pay you dividends on. Yeah, if you have a C-share, they're saying that you're not going to have any voting rights. 
and Google doesn't say jack about <laughs> paying you back for that, anything for that stock, okay? So the point is this, the moment somebody buys a stock, their money's gone. It, it's literally gone. I, I, they, I mean, it's it, their money, the cash, it's possessible. It is something we can hide, we can hold in our hands. It is something traceable. That money's gone, okay? Now they're holding a piece of paper with a, an, an abstraction in terms of just a, a price that moves up and down. Um, based on based on transactions of real money uh, by other investors with, for that for that thing. Um, now, some people, which I, I hear a lot, is oh, but I can just you know trade it. I should I could just tomorrow when the stock market opens, I could just get my money back, right? <laughs> I mean, can right. I just cash out tomorrow, right? Um, the answer is no, you can't actually because here's the thing: uh, everyone in your situation, if you own stock, thinks that way. Okay, <laughs> but uh, clearly that's not going to happen if everyone thinks that way and everyone actually tries it. <laughs> Again, if everyone actually wanted their money back tomorrow, then they would be trying to cash out uh, thirty trillion dollars. Okay, but uh, but clearly maybe not everyone's going to cash out at the same time. But the problem with that argument of how oh I could just cash out tomorrow, right? Is that it's presented as a fact. When people say that, it's like oh yeah I could just cash out tomorrow, like if it's a given fact. It's not a fact, okay, because it's actually based on two assumptions. Assumption number one is that there's somebody who's going to buy that stock from you, okay, because the price that they see it at is the last traded price, not the next traded price when you want to sell your stock, all right? So one, you're assuming that somebody actually does want to buy from you for that same price. Assuming that person's there, let's just say assumption number one is met, okay? Then you have another assumption you got to go with. You you have to you're dependent on, which is that no other shareholder has the same idea of selling it. Okay, <laughs> that you're the only one who's going to sell it when this person wants to buy it. So the problem, of course, is yeah, the supposed fact I could just cash out anytime I want. It's actually based on uh, two assumptions, so therefore it's not a fact. Um, to give you a better picture and probably easier way to look at it, Tesla stock, Tesla has a uh, 100 and uh, 69 million shares outstanding um, on any on the average volume for their stock in the past week from what I looked at was about 1.7 million meaning each day uh, on average uh, 1.7 million shares were traded so what does that mean that means um, only 1% of Tesla's shareholders could have cashed out on any given day all right because they have a hundred they have roughly 170 million shares and then each day, only 1.7 million was, was traded in terms of volume. So the idea that they could cash out anytime they want based on the price is is is, is another misconception. <laughs> well, if everybody and, tried to cash out, it would be 1929, mm -hmm. wouldn't it? All over again. Uh, it it would it would. And the funny thing is, you know, you, not everyone even needs to cash out. Only a only a <laughs> look if two percent of Tesla's investors try to shareholders try to cash out, they'd be in a world of hurt, okay? <laughs> because again, the volume traded on average is 1% of their shares outstanding. So it's it's just that, hey, most people are holding it and people think that they have money. Um, and I know we deviate a little bit from the question, but back to your question of, hey, do they get hosed, you know, if they've got retirement accounts and, and, um, and you know, college funds? They did get hosed if they didn't know what I just said, right? Because at the same time, some people are saying, oh, well, we know that it's a gamble. We know that we're taking money from other investors, and, and we're cool with that. Hey, 
If they're cool with that, then that's cool. <laughs> the problem is that a lot of people don't think that way. A lot of people do actually <laughs> do not want to gamble. They actually do trust that their, their 401k is real money um, that's growing, not some imaginary thing where their money's totally gone. Um, yeah, so, so, so for the most part, yeah, unfortunately, I, I hate to break it, but yeah, that is, that's kind of how the scheme works, where sure. – you know, the, the second you buy a stock, your money's gone, and now you're holding that thing. And the only, the only way you're going to get that money back is in a foreseeable way is by selling it to another investor. In a hypothetical way, oh, yeah, maybe Google will buy back their shares. <laughs> but, that, that's again, that's a hypothetical thing, right, so, which I'm only saying that because I already know what my critics are thinking. So all right. well, <laughs> I have to say that. All right. Yeah. Hypothetical. I, I want to sh- sure. sell a share of stock. Nobody wants uh-huh. to buy it. What happens? Uh, you're holding nothing then. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to buy it, then you're holding nothing. Like quite literally zero. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean that's that's the thing. Like some some people like to talk about stock. It's a good question where you ask too, because some people like to compare stocks to the house. Oh well, you know, if I have a house, I, I'm like, I'm gonna I try to sell it. And I can't sell it. Isn't that the same thing? Heck no, it's not the same thing. If you if you can't sell a house, you got a house still, okay? <laughs> I mean, you can't sell stock. You you have nothing at all. Um, and that's the thing is finance people love to equate the value of stocks to the value of a house as in this word value. They just think is, is just universal and stuff, right? The reality is, and, and I actually explained this in the, in the end notes of my book, which – I'm not sure. I don't think economics even explains this very uh, well or, ident- or identifies this. But what I see is value does not have a uniform or universal meaning. It actually comes in scale. At the most shallow end where it's meaningless is, is the stock value because the only way you can realize whatever that stock value is is by taking money from another investor. Now, a little more on the legitimate end, you can say there's a, there's a bond value, right, because the only way – you can get any money for the bond is uh, by either one selling it to another investor. Um, But however, the difference of course is at least there's a company that says they will pay you back something for that bond. Right. Right. So you have an entity that says they're going to, they're going to repay you something Um, on a more legitimate end is on the most legitimate end. The real end, which is a house is yeah, you can get a monetary value out of it by selling it, let's say to another investor. But if you can't sell it, the house itself has real intrinsic value that's valuable even in the absence of money itself. So you, on the most shallow end in the stock, the thing is worthless, and, and, and the only way you can get any value from it is monetary value by taking it from another investor. On the most legitimate end, on a house, you can't get, it from an, you can't get money from another investor. Cool. That's one way of getting value out of it or just knowing that you have a house. <laughs> so, yeah. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. We're talking with author Tan Lu, his new book, The Ponzi Factor. My name's Peter mm-hmm. Solomon. Tan, um, sure. what's the reaction been to the book? It's been solid, um, as, in, as in, again, my biggest critics are the ones who never read the book <laughs> they see my youtube trailer uh, uh the animated trailer it's three minute trailer and they get upset because i didn't talk about everything under the sun in an economic book in a two-minute trailer or they um 
hear just a short interview and think, oh, I didn't, I didn't talk about this, I didn't talk about that. Actually, I, I you know, it's because it's a ten-minute interview and can get to it. <laughs> so um, the the reaction as far as like the people who read it, it's it's great. As in, I one of the most encouraging reactions I've had was just came in the other day when um, a, fa a fan wrote me. His name is Wallace. He was an he's an ex stockbroker, and he said that this answered a lot of questions he's always had. He's a retired ex-stockbroker now. Um, and he says he, he bought like 10 copies and, and uh, shared it with, his, with people he knows and, uh, and it stirred up a lot of interesting conversations, he says. And to me it was interesting because when I wrote the book, I thought, the, the, I thought, I thought people, everyone in finance was going to hate it, okay, <laughs> especially stockbrokers. <laughs> But uh, the fact that he was a stockbroker and he wrote me, and and I am actually seeing a good, good amount of people who, um, who are actually in the finance community that that read it and really likes it and and shares it with other people, um, it's encouraging. It actually shows that uh, there's more open-minded people in finance than I personally thought, actually. Um, and yeah, the reaction's been great from from those people because once they see it, they they understand that it, what I describe is very simple. Um, and when, when people hear, if people listen to, who are listening to this right now, whether they agree with what I'm saying at this very moment or not, they're going to see things a little differently. Even if it's a critical person that doesn't think the stock market is a Ponzi scheme, um, they're going to see things a little differently because once you explain that this price movement by stock comes from other investors, and you're gonna, they're gonna just see more of it over time and realize that, that that's happening, what's really happening. And furthermore, they're gonna listen to people like Jim Cramer and people on CNBC talk about all these ridiculous hypothetical explanations for, 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 for things, um, and they're gonna see through those lies. I mean, Jim Cramer, for example, feels Tesla stocks, right? Because the stock went from twenty dollars to three hundred eighty dollars, while the company lost four point seven billion dollars in the past like eight years. All right, Kramer's Kramer's um, explanation for that is because Tesla is a cult. Okay, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not a stock; it's a cult. Okay. <laughs> All right, my explanation for it is quite simple. It's because the stock upon the asset, and it went from twenty dollars to three hundred eighty dollars because investors are exchanging money with each other in this Ponzi process, and the stock has nothing to do with the underlying company. There's no monetary connection to the underlying company, which is why the company can lose $4.7 billion, okay, and their stock can ascend to the sky. Um, now, Jim Cramer, of course, says, again, it's a cult. It's a cult. Well, that's cool, Jim. Now, can you show me where, like, when the SEC started to uh, list cults or register cults? Well, but, <laughs> you know, but that that uh -huh. leads to an next question. Yeah. Given the fact, if we accept your premise that the stock market's a Ponzi scheme, where's mm -hmm. Congress? Where's the Securities Exchange Commission? Oh, boy. Where's the Justice yeah. Department? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that's a good question. No, seriously, I, 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 that's a very good question. That is a, probably the only question I really did not know how to answer in my book. <laughs> okay? Um, because by definition, my premise is, is the SEC's definition. Um, the SEC defines a Ponzi scheme as an investment system. So, so element number one is an investment system, and element number two is that the investment profits are paid by other investors while the investors think the money's coming from somewhere else. SEC defines it like this, okay? 
Not my definition. Not my definition. <laughs> uh, and clearly we can observe this every single day when stocks are trading. Um, that's exactly what's happening. And with the help of CNBC and, and schools, those investors think that uh, capital gains, the stock price appreciation comes from, other, other, uh, from the um, growth of the company, which it doesn't. Where are they? Wow, I don't know. Um, because it really is so obvious, right? This is not, this is not like a, like a convoluted thing at all. You have a straight up, simple, straightforward definition of a Ponzi scheme. And capital gains is, it matches this definition. Why aren't they doing the thing? I don't know. Bottom line is, from what I've seen, is there's just a lot of ignorance. As in, they see, the, I guarantee if a, if a SEC person um, if you were to ask, if I were to debate an SEC, not debate, but I say if I were to have a public conversation with an SEC person, right, their first reaction would be, well, the stocks are equity instruments, right? And and I explained why they're not equity instruments earlier in the very beginning of the show with examples of Google C shares that right. don't have any voting rights, no dividends, and obviously Google's not going to pay you anything. It's, it's a sticker. Or, or their number two was like, yeah, but the stock value is is a $30 trillion. So the point is I think I think they're not doing anything because they're also they believe these fallacies like i said some of the biggest misconceptions are not random stories you see on the internet they're literally in textbooks they're 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 being they're being um yeah they're they're in textbooks and i would even say they're probably littered in nobel prize winning papers even uh and again the biggest one of the biggest um falsehoods that people get confused by is they think that this imaginary value of a stock is real money and even people who say that, oh, I know it's not real money, I know it's not real money, they don't really know it's not real money because if they really knew it's real money and they really internally knew it, when they see $200,000 in their 401k account or $40,000 in their stock trading account, they will see zero. They will literally visually see zero. That's when they really understand it. So even if people say that, oh, we know stocks not aren't real money, it's just paper money, no, then you should see zero where you see your thousands of dollars in the stock portfolio. That's when you really see it. Um, so, so the point is, yeah, I don't know where Congress is, and I, I personally think Congress and the SEC and these governments, uh, departments, they actually think the stock market is, 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 uh, yeah, is helping people and that uh, $30 trillion in stock market value growth is something positive because they don't quite understand um, Stand this, what I just said. So. You alluded to yeah. something. Stuff's mm -hmm. taught in schools. Schools are teaching this, mm -hmm. business schools, bachelor's mm -hmm. degrees, master's degrees, maybe even PhDs. How come? Yeah. How come? <laughs> okay. Because, hey, because, one, they don't understand the difference between the imaginary asset value and cash. By the way, I defined this. Uh, this error, I call it a universal error in my book, um, in, in Chapter 5, this difference between uh, not seeing this error between imaginary asset value and cash. Um, now, another thing very important about financial curriculum in finance school, they don't look at history. They don't study history, seriously. They, have, they do not look at history and the fact that um, – and focus on the fact that 1600s and 1900s, all stocks were paid dividends and that stocks – were meant to pay dividends, as in that's what legitimized stocks as real ownership instruments. It was not capital gains. Capital gains was never, ever meant to be – capital gains was meant to be a secondary form of profit so people can 
make money from owning a stock, owning a company with dividends, but they can also make money when they sell the stock to another investor. It was meant to be a secondary form of profit capital gains. It was never meant to be the primary or only way for investors to make money. So the point is stock, basically finance schools, they don't actually know history. I, I, see, I don't know Warren Buffett that well, but based on the stuff that comes out of his mouth, he doesn't know anything about history of stocks because if he did, he would realize that a stock without a dividend is a Ponzi asset. And if he's not paying dividends, then he's literally <laughs> promoting a Ponzi, Ponzi assets out there and a Ponzi scheme. So, It's amazing to me. All right. And the question I probably should have asked earlier, what drives mm-hmm. the stock price up? Is it simply demand from buyers? Yeah, I mean, you could say that's a demand from buyers. I look at it as an inflow of cash from new <laughs> investors. <laughs> but, it's, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's demand, but it's also just an inflow of cash. And, um, and you know, what, but the issue is it's just, um, yeah, it's just money coming from other investors. It's not uh, – it's a system – and the earlier investors who have it low and, and then they're selling it high, they're selling it to another investor. The problem – I mean, the problem is you got another investor now who bought it high and wants his money back. <laughs> it's it's one thing if see, it's one thing if we live in a world where some people buy stocks and say, "I love my stocks. I never want my money back. I just want to hold my stocks forever," <laughs> you know. And they don't want their money back. Hey, then 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 it's all good. Yeah, you know. Then this thirty trillion dollar vast value might mean something <laughs> after all. But no, we don't live in a world like that, right? We have inv- people invest in the stock market because they want to make money, and their only objective is to get more money, real cash, out of the system than they put in. And and you can, we can literally – let me give you an example. We can literally have a stock that starts at $1, okay? Right. And that person sells it for $2, okay? And then that person sells it for $3, okay? All the way up to – somebody selling that stock for $100. So it goes up by one, right? So with this example, what I want to show you is we have 99 people along the way who made a dollar, 99 people, okay? That's a lot of people, a lot of winners, okay? The problem, however, is you got a last guy over there who is down $100 (laughs) and wants his money back. So that is not a positive sum system. That is a negative sum system if you include all the transaction fees. It's a zero sum system in theory because it's zero sum if we don't have transaction fees because they're just exchanging money. But you negative sum because there are transaction fees. So. Then where the heck are we supposed to put our money that we want to save for a rainy day? Oh, my. I always get this. <laughs> I always get this. And I really it's – not, it's not a question I like to uh, address because – um, because I don't want to sound like a financial advisor trying to uh, trying to give investment advice. Because um, you know what I described is basically a really massive fraud that's happening. And and one of my friends eloquently put it is he's like she said um, she said yeah when people ask you that it's kind of like if you discovered cancer and now people are asking you for the cure you know <laughs> and it's like, I was like wow that's a good analogy it's very true that that is how i feel about it um but if you want some just rant, just quick advice about where to put money um if you want to play with stocks i would say at least go for the dividend yielding ones and be careful of the dividend yielding ones even uh, be careful for the for the ones that are meaningful dividends or reasonable dividends versus the, the bs dividends um if you, which I don't, which I personally say, just avoid the stock market altogether. But the other one, of course, is real estate. 
um, but I can understand why that's hard for people to get into if they don't have a lot of money. Um, and just in, or maybe bonds, um, but just in general, the, the these zero-sum Ponzi assets like Google's stocks and even Berkshire, Berkshire stocks is just um, where, where people are just cannibalizing each other for money. Yeah, it's a negative. It's it's negative-sum system that is designed to milk investors. That's it. And the people who are propelling this this lie are the, and the people who are making a lot of money off of this are one Wall Street and, and the people who are issuing stocks and two um, these companies uh, because they can issue stocks and get more money all the time. So I mean, one scary fact about Tesla I'll just throw it out there as well. I already mentioned they lost 4.7 billion dollars, but one fact most people don't understand and reporters are not reporting right now is over the past three years. Tesla also issued, I mean, not past three years, sorry, since 2013, so over the past five years, Tesla also issued an additional 55 million shares of stocks, okay? Their stocks outstanding went from uh, 114 million in 2013 to what is now 169 million outstanding shares, okay? So, so they issued 55 million shares over the past five years to stay in business. So they're literally printing this stuff to fund their operations, which is, which is, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I need to explain why that's a little bit uh, beyond shady. <laughs> it would right? be like putting dollars in the Xerox machine. Yeah, pretty much. But you know what? Hey, I got to give it to Elon. He, he knows how to work it. <laughs> I mean, he knows how to work it as in he, you know, he knows how to work it as in it is, Apparently, printing all that stock did not dilute his, his system. Apparently, there's enough demand based on the stuff he, he does in the media on the PR end. So, but nonetheless, the scheme is what it is. I mean, I'm not, I, have, I, have, I personally have nothing against Elon, by the way. I got nothing against Elon except for what I do realize is that this is a scheme he's running. And um, there are also a lot of bright people out there with a lot of bright ideas who are who basically are not running this scheme and are trying to do things a little more legitimately when they're coming out and trying to do good things to change the world. So. Are you hopeful of any change? I, you know, a step at a time because my followers, I really, I really appreciate them at this early stage uh, when they read the book and, and they're also appreciative that I share this knowledge as well. Um, once, once things get bigger, I would like to personally get involved in trying to push a little more change. Like, um, one, I'll just throw out one. One thing I would love to do is let's get a database that tracks investor losses. Okay, because mm -hmm. <laughs> believe it or not, that doesn't exist. <laughs> I talked to an investment banking friend of mine. He basically said, oh, "They're not going to let that happen. Wall Street won't that let that happen. If you, if you start a database that tracks investor losses, that's going to like overturn the system." <laughs> but but then again. It, it's kind of hard for, I think, an industry to say, we don't want you tracking that, right? As in, what, what do you got to hide, right? <laughs> what is you're trying to hide? Um, and another idea I would love to propose is just classify stocks as gambling instruments. Because at the end of the day, like I said before, I'm not against gambling if people want to gamble. I just want them to understand the gamble that they're getting into. You know? So, I mean, I mean one, one thing I encourage your listeners to do it, w w with whatever, whether or not they're thinking about playing with stocks or whether or not they've always – Whatever it is, like they agree or disagree, go on my YouTube page and, and, and listen to the audiobook introduction for um, for the Ponzi factor for the book. Uh, so just listen to the audiobook introduction and then and then make your decision from there. 
um, and what you want to do, whether or not you want to read the book. And basically, all if you look at my reviews on Amazon, all my readers, or many of my readers, are, so yeah, you have to read it. It should be mandatory reading, actually, for 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 anyone who's interested in stocks at all. Um, and again, it's, uh, yeah, as far as like change goes, what I propose is is uh, the the gambling, turning stocks into gambling instruments, classifying them as gambling instruments, so that way um, you don't have you can't be 18 and open an online trading account. <laughs> and um, yeah, I I personally though am hopeful and down the road that change will come. Um, in these forms because um, I believe they're very logical uh, changes and I don't think anyone can give me a good reason why we shouldn't keep a database that tracks investor losses, right? Yeah. My daddy always said, don't invest money you can't afford to lose. Smart man, yeah. <laughs> Smart man, yeah. <laughs> but that's, uh, you know, that's where it kind of gets the question of is that investing or gambling then, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I'd like to say thank you to my guest this morning, Tan Liu. His new book, The Ponzi Factor. Tan, before we go, do you have a website too? Uh, yeah, it's uh, ponzifactor.com. And um, they can search me on uh, social media Facebook, Instagram, uh, YouTube, and Amazon. The Ponzi Factor is. I think this is actually a very uh, unique name. <laughs> so that, all they have to do is just search the Ponzi factor. Yeah, and they'll find me. Thank you, Tanlo. Awesome. Thank it, you. My pleasure. And it's been Thank another edition of Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. A couple things left to say. Happy Father's Day to all the men out there who are fathers, whether you're here now or whether your father has gone on to somewhere else, he helped you be who you are, and he deserves our gratitude for that. Thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer. Thank you to my dear wife, Ann Tideman-Solomon, associate producer. Couldn't do the show without either one of you. And finally, there's nothing left to say, but see you soon.